following resources from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would this morning as we retrace Paul's footsteps from Athens into Corinth, that we would have the same courage and the same desire to be faithful watchmen and watchwomen here in San Jose. We know, O Lord, there are many in our own mission field, friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors who not only do not know your Son, but have never heard the gospel itself. And we praise you, Lord, for the wisdom and knowledge you've given us as those saved by grace and through the indwelling of your Spirit that we might testify, reason with, teach, and proclaim a crucified Christ. I ask this morning that we would be rightly convicted and rightly encouraged by Paul's missionary work and that you would show us that each and every one of us is a missionary too, called to the same work to proclaim the gospel to the lost as well. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd be pleased to commune amongst us this morning and that you would do only what you can do and that is transform us into the likeness of Christ. Give us his heart, give us his eyes, and give us his words as we look upon the people that are perishing. I pray, Lord, that we would have a right sensitivity and humility for all those who do not know you, that we would contemplate clearly their destiny and their end apart from you as they stand before the judgment seat. Lord, if you would stir our hearts to a right action this morning, that we as individuals and as members of this body would be faithful watchmen here in this area. We ask that, Lord, for your glory above all else. We pray it, Lord, for ourselves, that we might have consciences that are clear, that we can say that we're innocent before those who continue to reject you. And we ask, Lord, for you to save many through the testimony of our lips. In Christ's name, amen. I'm thankful you're here. If you read the passage and you heard it read this morning, um, I hope there was a, a reflection upon the work that Paul continues to do as he's in the middle of his second missionary journey, experiencing lots of persecution, lots of pain, and lots of suffering, and yet he presses on. And so he, he was a man just like us, and you say, well, how, how was he able to do this? How was he able to be a faithful watchman? Um, question that I, I would like us to start with is what responsibility, if any, do we have for other people in our lives? What responsibility do you have for family members or neighbors or co-workers who have never heard or do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you have any at all? When I was living in Boulder Creek years ago, um, I came home from work one day after a long day of teaching and I was tired and I pulled into my garage and I, and I heard this crackling and I looked across the street, and there was a fire in my neighbor's backyard. So I ran out of my car, and I went, and I pounded on his door. And he was asleep, and he woke up, and I said, there's a fire in your backyard. And so we grabbed some hoses and a fire extinguisher, and we were able to extinguish the fire. What if I had done nothing? What if I had just closed my garage door and had gone into my house? I would have said, you know, someone else will help. Someone else will see the smoke. It was a long day. I was tired. It wasn't my house. I barely knew the man. Why not let the house burn? Now, you, that's a right recoiling to those statements, right? You hear that and you go, how, how could you say such a horrible thing? 
because our consciences testify and compel us to call out and to help those who are in desperate need. This man was in need and had help not come, he might have perished in his own house. So the question is, why was the Apostle Paul running around the Mediterranean basin in the first century, suffering ridicule and persecution and and beatings and imprisonment and multiple assassination attempts? Why was he doing that? The Apostle Paul understood about his neighbor what I understood about my neighbor, that without help, without a word, that there was potential death. In the context of Paul, it was eternal damnation. Paul believed what he had said in verse 31, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. As we looked at last week, we know that to be Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul really did believe that that day is coming and that apart from Jesus Christ, all who reject him, all who do not know him, will perish, will be judged, and will perish. My beloved, if you are in Christ, listen, you have that same knowledge. If you are in Christ, you have that same knowledge. And living here in this area, you know that there are many in our lives that are in great danger at this very hour. I want us to join Paul, not just in his travel log going from Athens to Corinth. I want us to join Paul and see how he moves into Corinth and does what he's been doing all along, and that is being a faithful watchman for the lost in the community in which he stands. And I would like for us to have that same love for Christ, that same love for the lost, and that same courage to leave this place and identify one, two, three, four people in our lives and say, hey, they don't know Christ. They're in great jeopardy. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? Two points from the sermon this morning. He said, well, you always do three. Sometimes I do two. Sometimes I do four. Don't get excited. This is actually longer than the three-point. So, sorry to burst your bubble. Number one, Christians are watchmen for others. You're a watchman for others. And number two, God is a watchman for us. Christians, you are a watchman for others, and God is a watchman for us. The theme of the sermon is simple. Be a watchman for the lost because God watches over you. Be a watchman for the lost, because God watches over you. Point number one, Christians are watchmen for others. Look at verse one. Dr. Luke is writing, he says, after this, after, remember Paul's sermon before the Oropagus, says, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Now, Corinth was almost due west, 50 miles. Um, it was the largest, at that time, it was the largest, most cosmopolitan city in Greece in Paul's day. 200 years before Paul gets on scene, uh, the Romans came in and they decimated Corinth. They literally burnt it to the ground. And and the city sat desolate for almost a century. Until 46 BC, someone you probably know, Julius Caesar, came in and he built the new Corinth. The new establishment. It was the seat of government in the the Grecian province. Um, It was populated primarily by Roman colonists. A lot of former uh, Roman soldiers lived there. And in this new Corinth in Paul's day, there were over 400,000 citizens that lived there, and that did not count the tens of thousands that would come through the city every single day. It was a mixed population of Greeks and Jews and Italians and foreigners throughout the known world. You see, Corinth was strategically located, and I have no doubt Paul was eager to get there. 
Corinth in Greece sat on the Corinthian Isthmus. It was this little stretch of land about four miles long that connected the Corinthian Gulf to the Aegean Sea. And so instead of uh, sailing south around uh, the Peloponnese um, rocky, stormy area, they wanted to cross through. And so they would literally park their ships on either side and they would take their cargo and they would travel the four miles to get from one point to the other, traveling east-west. So Corinth is on this massive east-west thoroughfare. Um, and so at the time that he arrives, the Paul gets there. Nero actually tries to build a canal uh, and he fails, and, but one actually was built um, in the 1900s. So it took another 1900 years for them to get the idea, we gotta, we gotta make a route here. By the time Paul arrives, uh, Corinth in Greece was the dominant culture center of its time. Material possessions, pagan worship, morally corrupt. It would be today uh, a modern-day Las Vegas today. In fact, if you, were, if you were so debased in your life, you were called a Corinthian. And if you were Corinthianized, it means that you had succumbed to the debauchery of all sorts of evil sin. And, and so Paul gets there, and, and, and he's eager to do what he had done in Athens. Uh, Corinthian was more secular, but still, there was so much pagan idolatry. Uh, the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, uh, that temple sat up on the, the Acrocorinth, the highest part of the city. And in the center of the town was the temple to Apollos, the, the sun god. So they, they definitely engaged in their pagan worship, much like the Athenians did that we looked at last week. But unlike in Athens, there was a very large Jewish synagogue in Corinth. And so, as Paul always does, he starts there. And that's where Luke picks up with us here in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. And he, Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see him, and he, and he Paul, went to see them and became Became he, and because he was the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, and they were tent makers by trade. Um, and so uh, Aquila and Priscilla, you know from other letters, they, they were kicked out of Rome. Lots of controversy as to how that happened, but many Jews were kicked out of Rome, and they, they landed back in Corinth. That um, expulsion from Rome was 49-50 AD. We know that by cross-referencing other historical texts which puts Paul in Corinth no earlier than 50. And most scholars say he was there in 51 to 53 for 18 months. So we got a really good time frame on when he was there. Paul's a tent maker by trade. Aquila and Priscilla are tent makers. And so they get together and they work together. And Paul begins to establish his ministry in this most prominent city. Um, and so he starts off, as he always does, verse 4, he goes to the synagogue. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so we see this now as the pattern. He goes to the synagogue, he speaks to Jews, he speaks to God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue, and he begins to reason and to teach and to proclaim a crucified Christ. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So that's, that's his job. That's his mission, right? He's going to reason and teach and testify that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah. Now, Silas and Timothy, if you remember from your, from your other studies, Paul sent them from Athens. He sent them back to Thessalonica and back to Philippi to support the churches there. And then he says, now come back to me in Corinth. They meet him again in Corinth, and they have a gift offering. And they have a gift offering from Philippi. And that gift offering is sufficient enough 
where Paul is able, it says here, verse 5, Paul was occupied with the word. So he didn't have to do any tent making. Money had come from Philippi, full-time ministry. So he's engaged, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And so as we looked at last week, he's doing good gospel work here. He's doing a lot of pre-evangelism too. He's teaching, he's reasoning, he's working through scripture. This is a Corinthian culture. They were influenced by Greco-Roman thought and so he's doing good philosophical teaching as well. And then we get to verse six and the whole mood changes, right? And when they, those were the Jews and the God-fearers in the synagogue, when they opposed and reviled Paul, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. The word opposed there in the Greek literally means to arrange in battle against. So they gathered together. They said, all right, let's silence this guy. Let's silence the message. Let's silence the teaching, the reasoning, and let's actually slander his name so that he will speak no more and maybe leave this place altogether. Now, what might surprise you here? is the response that Paul has to them. In fact, you, you may have heard it read, or you may have read it sometimes, that, that doesn't sound very Christian. It doesn't sound very loving, right? In, in light of their opposition, it says that he shook out his garments. You say, well, what, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means, shaking out his garments. You probably do. You probably have a good connection. Jesus taught something very similar. Remember when he sent out the disciples in their first missionary journeys? And he said, that town does not receive you what? Shake the dust off your sandals. Jesus said very clearly, Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So this is not just Paul's doing. He's deriving this missionary strategy, this approach toward evangelism from the Lord himself. And we will never say that Christ is not loving, Right? So the phrase would parallel today, I think, we wash our hands of something. You say, you know, I came in, I tried to help, I gave you counsel, I sat with you, I prayed with you, I worked with you, and you're continuing down that path? You say, you know what, it's on you. I'm going to let you go down that path, I'm going to hand you over to God, and I'm going to pray for your soul. Now, it's really interesting. The dust also was a witness that God would judge. One commentator put it like this. Listen, this is so good. He said, the dust is left behind and not taken along and thus remains as a witness that the gospel messengers had come and duly delivered their message but had not been received in faith. That dust would testify to the judge who is Christ and none of the guilty would be able to deny its testimony. So the leaving of the dust was more than a, a, a symbol. It was more than metaphorical. It was saying, hey, this dust that's being left here is a witness that you have rejected Christ and God will judge that rejection. In other words, listen very carefully. The shaking of the dust, it's not a curse. Paul's not cursing them. It's not an imprecatory prayer that God's asking for God, God, Paul's asking for God to judge them. It is a disclaimer. It is a witness to the guilt that those who reject Christ bring upon themselves. They're saying, Paul's saying, that blood is on you. Your blood is on you. And so what blood is this? You say, we, you know, we have lots of teachings on blood in the scriptures. This is the blood of murder. Right? This is murderous blood. This goes back to Cain and Abel. Remember, when that blood was spilled, what did that blood do? Genesis chapter four, verse 10. It cried out to God from the ground. Deserving of what? Deserving of punishment. And so here, by 
rejecting the salvation of Jesus Christ freely by grace through faith, Paul is saying, you know what he's saying? He's saying you're committing self-murder. You're committing suicide. Now Paul says, listen, I love you. I have faithfully sought to reason with you and teach you from God's word. I've sought to teach you about Christ and salvation by grace through faith, but you do not only, not only do you refuse it, you become hostile toward the message and hostile toward me, the messenger. And therefore, Paul says what? I am innocent of what? I'm innocent of your self-murder. I'm innocent of you not listening and and not coming to Christ and therefore murdering yourself. He says, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so what, what are we supposed to glean from this? Was Paul just having a bad day? And so that's it, I'm done. Is there anything that we can take from this in light of how we are to approach the lost? If you hear this and you think that's cruel, be very careful. This is the word of God and his evangelistic strategy was established by Christ. So this is true and this is good. A few things I want us to take from this. Number one, I want you to notice something. Paul only shook the dust off after he put the dust on. He only shook it off after he put it on. What do I mean? He spent time teaching them and reasoning with them. Many, many of the commentators said three, four, five, several weeks he's in the synagogue working really hard, no doubt getting rebuked, um, getting slandered, and yet he tried to continue to preach and teach this message of salvation. Now, I've mentioned to you over the past several months that there are several well-known evangelical pastors who are calling Christians to flee California. And one of the things I found in light of this text to be very offensive is many of these men who are are calling people to leave this state have never come here to evangelize in this state. They haven't put the dust on. They're calling us to shake the dust off, but they haven't put the dust on. Not one of the 40 million people in this state have they put the dust on. I don't think they're in a place to call Christians to leave this place unless they first come and done what? Tried to. Reason to. Preach to. Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Any ceasing of dialogue, any ceasing of ministry or evangelism requires you start. Man, that's, that's easy to, to conclude, right? You can't stop something you didn't begin in the first place. Now, I've heard Christians use this, this idea of shaking off the dust or washing my hands in the context of friends and family who continue to live in willful, unrepentant sin. Now, that's, that's a bad application, right? This dust shaking is after reasoning and teaching and proclaiming Christ for a period of time. So if you look at someone in your life and say, oh, that, that person, they just live in such a wicked manner. I'm gonna shake, shake the dust off. Well, again, there was no dust put on. You didn't try. If you haven't spoken to them about Christ, if you haven't testified about Christ, there's no dust shaking to be taken place. Right, in fact, if we do that, we can't even say we're following Christ. It was Jesus in Luke chapter five who said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but who? The sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So don't shake the dust off someone in your life who's steeped in sin if they've never heard the gospel. Second thing I want to draw from this, I want you to notice that Paul was not bound to continue in the midst of his rejection. He was not bound. This is really important. After reasoning and teaching and proclaiming likely for weeks, Paul was free to do what? He gave him a final warning, and he said, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I tried. I started here. This is a Jewish Messiah. I started here. I preached to you from your word. You refuse. I'm going to the Gentiles. My beloved, 
your love for the lost, if you really want people that you know to know Christ, it will take time. It will take, especially in our cultural moment, it'll take a lot of reasoning, establishing something like truth. Does truth exist, yes or no? Does God exist, yes or no? You're going to have to do some of that good pre-evangelism we talked about these last couple weeks. So it's going to take time and energy. But as you invest in that and as you move through it, if that person or those people continue to reject Christ, the word of God, truth, then at some point in time, wisely you'll want to say, I'm not bound to this any longer. Hopefully after much prayer and consultation. Because you can bet, especially here, there are dozens of people in your mission field who do not know Christ, and many of whom, listen, have never heard the gospel. They've never heard it, right? So here you are working with someone who keeps rebuking you and saying, no, I don't believe, and I don't believe in truth, and I don't believe in God, and I think your Bible's foolish, and you press, and you press, and you press, year after year after year, and then all these people over here who've never heard Jesus' name. So Paul is free to go, and he does. He says, I'm gonna go to the Gentiles. So number one, you, you can't shake off the dust if you haven't put the dust on. Number two, you're not bound to continue in an evangelistic relationship when those in that relationship continue to reject the gospel. I'm going to give you one more before I get to the second point. And this is going to be the hardest to hear. So I'm warning you, all right? So I want you to don't, don't close your ears. There's, there's an implication here that's really hard to hear. By not proclaiming Christ to those in your mission field, by not trying to reason with people and lead people to an understanding of who God is, who Christ is and how you can be saved, there's blood guilt on your hands and your head as a result. Blood guilt. So where where do I get that? Look at verse six again. Paul said, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. He said, wait a minute. How how can Paul declare innocence and said the, the blood is upon them? Because he had what? He had been a faithful watchman. He had entered into that city. He had gone to the synagogue. As a faithful watchman, he proclaimed a crucified Christ and the judgment day of this coming. And he called them to repentance and he called them to faith, but they kept saying no. So Paul was able in good conscience to say, listen, you're gonna commit self-suicide. You're gonna commit self-murder. That's on you. I've tried. I am innocent. But he only could say that because of the work that he had already done. You say, where where does that phrase, your blood be upon your head, come from? It comes from Ezekiel. It's one of the reasons I had it read twice before the sermon. If you know the prophet Ezekiel, prior to the destruction of of Judah in the south, God spoke to Ezekiel and said, warn them, tell them, their idolatry is going to lead to destruction and I'm going to cast them out through the Babylonians and they're going to be taken into captivity. Tell them, warn them, be a faithful watchman, Ezekiel. Now in ancient times, a watchman, if you don't know that term, was commissioned to stand upon the wall or upon the highest precipice or tower in the city and they would watch and they would look out. And what were they looking for? An enemy. They were looking for the sword that was going to come against that city. And they had a single job. As soon as they saw a potential threat, they were to, sound, they were to blow the trumpet or sound the alarm and notify the city that danger's coming, the sword is coming. And if they did their job, regardless of the people's response, they had faithfully exercised their duties as a watchman. If they didn't, if they saw the sword coming and they fled, or they saw the sword coming and they fell asleep and said nothing, then the people in that city may perish from the enemy, but they, 
God says of Ezekiel and any watchman, they would be responsible for that bloodshed, that the guilt of that would be upon them too. Ezekiel chapter 33, listen. God says to Ezekiel, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So the watchman's to hear from God and speak the truth to the people. If I say to the wicked, O wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from this way, and that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. If you If I say to people to repent and you don't tell them to repent, you say nothing and they perish, blood upon your hand. Verse 9, though, but if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. That's, That's hard. God is saying we have a great responsibility over those in our lives. A great responsibility to warn them from the word of God that this God is holy and he will judge. God calls Ezekiel the son of man and he was the watchman for Israel. Jesus Christ, of course, we know is the consummate, ultimate son of man and he became the watchman for the world testifying to the glory of God and the judgment day to come. The apostle Paul here is a watchman in Corinth. If you are in Christ... This may not be a title you want, but it is yours according to Scripture. You are a watchman for Jesus here in San Jose. That's your job. That's your job as a Christian. It was given to you by grace through faith, but it is your job. Paul was able to say, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent because he had faithfully proclaimed. Right? He reasoned with them from their word. He taught them the gospel of grace through faith. He testified to the judgment that would come this day when this appointed man, Jesus Christ, would come and sit upon his throne and judge who? The living and the dead. He said, listen, if you refuse this message, if you refuse salvation and hope in Christ, you will perish and that blood will be upon you. Paul says, no longer on me. I faithfully told you how to escape through a crucified, risen Savior. He told them, if they did not listen, it was on them. So a couple questions before I go into my next point. Can you say the same of those in your mission field? Can you look upon those that you know that do not know Christ and say, I'm innocent of your blood? Have you done the good work of reasoning and teaching and proclaiming Christ hard work over a period of time? I'm not talking about a cup of coffee or dinner where you give a gospel formula. God is holy, man is sinful, Christ is Savior, repent and believe. Can I get you more coffee? I'm talking about the hard work it takes here in this area to reason with and pray with and think through some of these really hard teachings. This is, and it has to be, one of the hardest takeaways from this passage. But I don't want us to ignore it because it's real. It's it's important for the well-being of all those in our mission field. We have been made watchmen for them. And as God made it clear here through Ezekiel, it's important for your own soul. Your soul. Now, if I told you at the beginning of the sermon that pulled into my garage, heard the flame, saw the smoke, and I did nothing. I did the things you recoiled from. I went into my house, long day, not my house, 
not my responsibility. And I told you that in that story, that man, that house burned and that man perished. You would look at me rightfully with disgust. And you would say in part, that man's blood is on your hands. And you would be 100% right. My beloved, how much more those in our daily lives who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. How much more? At this very moment, they stand in danger of experiencing the eternal flames of hell, not just losing their house or their physical body, but their souls. How much more will their blood be upon us if we say nothing, if we do nothing? We have to say infinitely more because the punishment is infinitely more grievous. All right? I told you you wouldn't like it. We are God's 21st century watchmen placed here in San Jose not to ignore the lost and not to condemn the lost but to reason with them, to teach them and to tell them about Christ. Amen? All right. Number two, I pray you're still with me. Do not be discouraged because I'm going to show you where you get the strength and power to be the faithful watchman that God's equipped you to be. Number two, God is a watchman for us. We're called to be watchmen for the lost. God is a watchman for us, and that's how we're able to do it. If you heard this calling, and some of your faces, I can see you hear this, and it's daunting. I mean, that's a daunting thought. You said, well, you know, it's hard enough for me to say anything, but now you're telling me if I don't say anything that their guilt is upon me, their blood's upon me. I'm not telling you that the word of God is. I wouldn't say a message like that. That's hard for me to hear. That's what God says. You hear this and you say, well, that, that means I got to engage a world that's very much like Corinth. This is a hard place. San Jose is a hard place. If you've traveled anywhere throughout this country or the world, you know this is a very hard place to be as a Christian. Right? We, are, we are steeped in a very liberal, anti-Christian area that is certainly antagonistic toward the church and Christians just like you. To be the watchman means you have to put yourself out. You have to expose yourself to ridicule, persecution, fractured relationships, loss of friends, loss of job. Maybe today in our cultural moment, maybe even being brought before a judge and found guilty for breaking a civil law and going to jail today. If you were to be honest right now, I think you might say, Keith, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I love Jesus, but I can't do this part that the scriptures are calling me to. I don't have the willpower. I don't have the strength. I don't have the courage. It's scary out there. I like it in here. I would agree with you. You cannot on your own. You have no chance. You'll be rolled over by this culture. You cannot, you cannot be a watchman on your own, but you can be a faithful watchman for Jesus Christ with God as your Father, Christ as your King, and the Holy Spirit where? Dwelling inside of you. This is not a call for you to muster up the energy and the strength in your own flesh to go do that which no one wants to do. This is a call to be obedient to a God who says, I have strengthened you and I will be with you. Now go do it. So do not be discouraged, my beloved. You can, like Paul, be a brilliant watchman for the Lord right here because you are not alone. Look at verse 7. And he, Paul, left there. He left the synagogue and he went to the house of a man, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Uh, Titius, is, his house is right next door to the synagogue. And that's great location, right? So he's a God-fearer. He goes over there. He's hearing all the teachings from the Jews. Paul comes along and says, that's right. The Holy Spirit changes his heart, saves him. And so Paul picks up, not, not, not a, 
a great distance to move, picks up the ministry from the synagogue, goes next door to Justice's house and says, I'm going to start a home church here. And that's where the ministry now continues in, in Corinth. And then Luke tells us, look at verse 8, that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So this Crispus is very likely the same Crispus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, that Paul baptizes, one of the very few baptized by the apostle Paul. Uh, but what's so encouraging here is not everybody in the synagogue responded the same way to the gospel. Do you notice that? Their leaders, several in the synagogue, several outside of the synagogue, they heard the gospel, they repented, they believed, and they became followers of Christ. And most commentators believe that the early church in Corinth was robust. There were several early young believers in that church, one of the reasons that Paul stayed for 18 months. It was God's desire for him to stay there. This was a prominent city, and, and God knew through the Holy Spirit if he could establish a really strong church in Corinth, right there where you have literally people from all over the world crossing through on a daily basis. And what a great thing, right? You have 400,000 residents alone, and then you have all these people coming and passing through with their ships. So it's a perfect location. Lots of people, lots of unsaved people for a church to be, sound familiar, for a church to be and the gospel to go out. Very much like San Jose. So how did he get Paul to do this? How did he get Paul See, we, we, we have a tendency to put someone like Paul up on a pedestal. So I, I can't be a watchman like that, but Paul, good, because Paul's an apostle. Paul is a sinful man saved by grace, just like you and me. Paul was encouraged by God. Paul was able to stay there because God brought a vision to him, and in that vision, he told him two compelling things. That, oh, I want you to get this, and then we're going to close. If you get this, you're going to be a bold watchman today and for the rest of your life. Two simple things that he tells Paul that I want us to draw from here because the same truths apply to us. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So this is the longest period of time either in the first or second missionary year that Paul had stuck in a single place. He stayed in the location. Now this is so reminiscent. This is of God's speaking to many of the Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, he would say, do not be afraid, do not be silent. I will be with you, I will protect you. Speak the truth that I told you, O prophet of Israel. And so Paul is very much getting a direct dialogue that those he knew so well from his own scriptures had received too. So for 18 months, what does Paul do? 18 months, he stays the course. He doesn't, he doesn't veer away. He doesn't shy away. He proclaims a crucified Christ. He refuses to be silent in a culture just like the day that was trying to cancel him. They were trying to silence Paul and said he was bold, he was the watchman for God, and he was able to be so because of two things. Number one, these are, so I'm not going to blow off your theological socks here if you're waiting for that. These are simple, profound, life-altering truths. Number one, he's able to do it because God says what? I am with you. You're not doing it alone, Paul. I'm not telling you to go out and do it by yourself. I'm with you, number one. And number two, he says, I got others in this city. Oh, I got lots of others in this city. So you're not alone because I'm with you. You're not alone because my people are with you. So first, let's look at him not being alone because God is with him. Paul 
derived his strength first and foremost in that he believed God was actually with him. He believed it. He didn't just hear it. It wasn't part of his theological construct. He actually believed. Look at verse 9. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you. Paul believed that. Do you? As a Christian, do you believe that God is with you, and therefore you can be a bold watchman for Jesus here in San Jose? I mean, this is, this is the same great I am who spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and said to Moses, what? Don't be afraid. Moses said, I'm not going back. He said, don't be afraid. This is the same pre-incarnate Christ that appeared to Joshua, remember, as the captain of the army as he was going to begin that invasion. The same Savior King who touched Jeremiah's mouth. The same Lord raised up high that came down and touched Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah said, send me, Lord, I will go. God said, you don't even know where I'm going to send you. He said, it doesn't matter. You're with me. The same Lord the same creator that Paul had proclaimed in Athens, God has said in a vision to Paul, I'm with you. No harm will come to you. That, my beloved, is what enabled Paul to stay 18 months in a city like Corinth. It wasn't his willpower. It wasn't his upbringing as a Pharisee. It was the fact that he believed and he trusted that God was with him and because God was with him, he could be the watchman God had called him to be. Now, it's fascinating, really early after this vision, we get this understanding that 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 test, God was tested to see whether or not he was going to be faithful. Uh, look, Look at verse 12 with me. But when Gallia was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made an, a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So remember, the Jews were not happy Paul was sticking around. They wanted Paul gone. So they make a, an attack against him. They bring him before the tribunal and they say this, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So you know this by now. We're in chapter 18. This is the same drill, right? They get upset. They want Paul out. So they go and they make these false ac- uh, accusations to the local tribunal trying to get Roman law brought upon Paul and the other's actions. Now, I want you to watch so closely. This is beautiful. You want to you see how we know God was with Paul supernaturally? Look at verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, he didn't get a chance to speak. Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Verse 15. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. This This is a watershed moment, by the way, in the history of the early church. Right? So before Paul is able to open his mouth, God has completely resolved the problem. Paul doesn't even get to testify. How does he know God's with him? God said, just keep quiet. I'll take care of it. And he did. But not only did he resolve the problem, this ruling by Gallio was actually precedent setting. And for the next 10 years before we get to Nero, it was understood that Christianity came under the protection of the Jews. And the Jews had protection under Roman law. And then for almost an entire decade, before we get to Nero, Paul and the others were free to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because of this particular ruling. It's fantastic. Not only does God say, I'm with you, I'll take care of you, don't say a word, I'm going to set the course for the next decade so that you can do the work I've called you to do. Now look what happens in verse 17. The Jews obviously were not pleased with Gallio's rendering. They probably had some understanding. Gallio was actually the brother of Seneca who was 
well, a judge in the imperial court, lots of power, lots of connections. So that, that precedent-setting case meant something. Verse 17, what did the Jews do? They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So Paul, he doesn't say a word. He's released. The judgment of Gallio is favorable for the mission for years to come. And Paul's accusers, instead of having their day in court against Paul, not only they ruled against, but then they turn on their own spokesperson and they beat him up right in front of the tribunal and Gallio does nothing about it. So there's judgment here taking place right before Paul's eyes and Paul walks out unscathed, unaccused. How did he know God was with him? He's showing him right here. My beloved, the primary reason that we can be courageous watchmen here in San Jose, reasoning with and teaching and proclaiming a crucified Christ in a hostile city like this is because God is with us. He is really with you. Not sentimentally with you, not metaphorically with you. He is literally with us. Right? Do you remember Jesus, his instructions before his ascension, he gave to the disciples on the Great Commission? Do you remember what he said? We love this part so much, right? He's going to send them out. As, as lambs before wolves. And he's going to say, now go be watchmen to the world. And then he says in verse 20, Matthew 28, and lo what? You love this. I am with you how long? Always, even to the end of the age. Christ says, I'm not sending you alone. I'm going with you. When being instructed on how to live holy lives in the midst of a hostile culture, the author of Hebrews decided to quote, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, and what God had promised to Joshua, the same promise applies to you, the church. God said what? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. How do you know that? My beloved, if you know Christ, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The third person, the holy triune God, is where? In you. In you. You are the temple of the living God. So every moment of every day, no matter where you are or what you're doing, God is with you. We could argue theologically, he cannot not be with you. You can't be separated from him. No matter what you're doing, he is with us. And if he is with us, then we have to ask the question that Paul asked in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Well, the answer is no one. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. Therefore, you, my timid, shy, lovely saint of God, you, whatever you say, with all the excuses, I can't, I can't, I can't, you can, you can, you can, because God is with you. To be a bold watchman, just like Paul, at work, at home, with the neighbors that do do not like you. You see, if your father's with you, and he is, the father's with you through the son by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, my beloved, then you can do anything he commands you to do. Not anything. That's what the culture says. You can do anything he's commanded you to do. He's commanded you to do to be a faithful watchman. So you can. Otherwise, he wouldn't call you to do it. That would be a mean God, right? We get this as children. If you, if you had parents who you trusted, you got that with your parents. When Abby was little, we, we, ha- we still have this uh, uh, a mechanical fish called Billy Bass. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's really funny, you push a button, he sings a couple songs, but he moves. It's kind of spooky for little kids. And so, first time she saw it, she's like, ah! She runs out, and like, that thing's terrifying, right? And so, I couldn't get her to even look at it, didn't want anything to do with it, but if I grab her by the hand, she'd march right up to that thing and go, fish, fish, fish. 
I'd let go of her hand and she'd run. What was the difference? It wasn't strength in herself. It was trust in her father, trust in her grandfather with me, right? Same for us, my beloved, that we can have that same trust in God that we're not alone and therefore you can be, I would say, radically courageous. Even in a place like San Jose, when you know you're gonna get persecution, radically courageous watchmen for the Lord. But there's another reason here, and I, I find this most intriguing and I hopefully, hopefully encouraging for you. You should remain on the wall, be the watchman, proclaim Christ, teach Christ, reason with the lost, not only because God is with you. Verse 10 again, he said, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And that's fantastic, right? It's like, I got people here. I got lots of people here. I have saved the elect who are saved, the elect who are yet to be saved, that will be saved, and I'm gonna grow this place. I'm gonna grow this population of the church in Corinth. In other words, Paul, he's saying to Paul, you're not alone because I'm with you, and you're not alone because others are with you too. Now that's the incarnate body of Christ. I said, well, I know that God is with me, but I can't see him, I can't touch him, and yet he gives us each other that we might see and touch and know and be strengthened by my beloved, I can't, I can't read this passage and not think of 2 Kings chapter 6. Remember 2 Kings chapter 6? You know, Elisha's with his servant, and, and, and the king of Syria wants Elisha dead because he keeps saying things the king of Syria does not like, right? So, so uh, Elisha and his servant are in Dotham, and the king of Syria finds out, and so he sends his horses and his chariots, and they surround the prophet and his servant. You remember this, don't you? 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elisha's servant got up and went out early the next morning, an army, king of Syria's, horses and chariots had surrounded the city. And the servant said, oh no, my Lord, speaking to Elisha, what shall we do? The servant asked. Remember Elisha's response? He says, do not be afraid. Ride. Do not be afraid, Elisha answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant's going, one, two, one, two. Bad math. Elisha did not do well in math. Verse 17, Elisha prayed, open his eyes, praying to God, listen to this. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of what? A fire. Well, that's not the king of Syria. Those are horses and chariots that have surrounded them from God. He was no longer afraid, neither Elijah nor the servant because the Lord was with him. There were people there. Even in this place, my beloved, even in San Jose, you have saints all around you. Not just your brothers and sisters here at Cameron Park. There are saints all over this city. God's elect, those redeemed by grace, who are on your side, who will fight for you if you fight for Christ. But you have to fight for Christ. How are they gonna come alongside of you and encourage you and pray for you and lift you up if you're not fighting? But if you fight, they will come out. They will come out of the woodwork. Years ago, early in my ministry, I think I'd been pastoring a year or two, one of my former students died, tragically, at 20, in a car accident. He was from a, a Persian family. We had spent about two years going back and forth with the gospel of grace, the word of God, and the Quran. Um, he was raised a Muslim. And, uh, and then he died, and I, I didn't know if he had made a profession of faith. Um, the family called me up, and they, they notified me of his death, and then they shared with me his journal writings before he died. And in it, he had made professions to Jesus. It was just unbelievable to know that, that, um, that God would do that. The family asked if I would 
um, help in the memorial service? And of course I said yes. Um, they were Muslim, but they wanted to honor his Christian convictions. And so I show up at the funeral home down in Los Gatos, and it was a full house, and there were many devout Muslim men there in full attire, all gathered together to, to listen to me preach the gospel. They didn't want to hear it. And they were all off to one side. It was a divided service. A Muslim cleric spoke first, and then I was to speak second. Now, I fully attended, by God's grace, to go and faithfully proclaim the gospel. I wanted to be a faithful watchman to all those that had gathered there that had worshipped and were worshipping a false god. But I can tell you, I was nervous. I was nervous. So what were you nervous for? I was nervous because I'm in a a room full of Muslims who do not like Christ. This is what God did. Listen, upon my arrival, several Persian Christians from a local church came up to me, people I'd never met before. And they said, we heard about this. We are here to pray for you, to encourage you. And they did. They prayed for me before I went up. These are people that I had never met and and some I've never met since. But they were God's people brought out of the woodwork by God to encourage me in that moment. And they said, preach boldly, crucified Christ. Preach him boldly. And I thought, wow, what is this? How could this happen? Well, how could it happen? God has people. God's people are here, they're in our midst, but we must be out doing the work that they can encourage us to continue in it. Now we must remind ourselves of this daily, my beloved. You say, well, why why would Paul need a vision from God for God to tell Paul something he already knew? Why? He's a sinner that needs encouragement too. And I'm, I'm not encouraging you to have a vision I'm going to tell it to you from the word of God. This is the word of God. God is with you. God's people are with you. This church is with you. And people in San Jose are with you. So I can say to you with the same confidence that Paul had in receiving that vision, I can say to you something as simple as this. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to be the watchman, the watchwoman that God has called you to be. Jesus Christ, our eternal watchman, experienced, as you know, in his broken body and his spilled blood, the greatest fears known to man so that man might be set free. I know this is scary. God is saying, don't be afraid. All the fears, the real fears that you had, my son consumed for you. He took them upon himself. You see, my blood, we don't reason the gospel with the lost here because we're afraid of being mocked and ridiculed like Paul was. We're afraid of that. You must remember that Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, and even as he was hanging on the cross, received all the mocking and all the ridicule in our place. He did that for us. We don't proclaim the truth of Christ to the lost because we're afraid of of being fired from our jobs, losing our friends, maybe one day being brought before a judge and put into a court of law. My beloved Jesus alone went before the Sanhedrin He alone was accused of all sorts of crimes, none of which he committed. He was tried. He was found guilty. For what? For being a faithful watchman. Right? They did not like what this watchman was saying, even though what he was saying was true. He called them to repentance and faith. Why? Because the kingdom of God had come. It had already come. Judgment was imminent. My beloved, we don't take seriously the blood guilt that's upon our hands and our heads for not testifying to Christ because we don't take seriously or maybe we don't believe that Christ bore our blood guilt in his flesh for us. Because if you believe that, 
If you believe that Jesus really did take the blood guilt, your blood guilt for sinning against the holy God upon himself to set you free, then you know what? You'll say, listen, I'm going to go out, I'm going to proclaim it. I'm going to testify to it because I don't want the blood of anybody upon me because Christ set me free. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate awaiting his final execution, do you remember when they, Pilate strategically gave, he wanted, remember, he wanted to get Christ out of the scene. He did not want his hands to be covered with the blood of Jesus. And so they offered to the crowd Barabbas. Remember that? Pilate said to the crowd, which of these two do you want me to release? And they cried out, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with the Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said what? Let him be crucified. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, listen to this, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. I'm innocent. And then the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. They're quoting Deuteronomy. They're quoting Ezekiel. And then Pilate released Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. I don't know that there's a more ironic scene in all of human history, my beloved, than what happened in this moment. These, the Jews were demanding his crucifixion, crying out, his blood be on us. We assume full responsibility, all the blood guilt for killing this innocent man in direct violation of their own laws. And yet it was this man's precious blood that what? In the spilling of the blood of Christ could wash their blood guilt clean. Extraordinary. The very blood they were asking for to be shed innocently was the same blood that by grace through faith could make them clean. Pontius Pilate, the Jews, the Corinthians before Paul, every single sinner who rejects Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has his own blood guilt on his hands. Everyone who hears the gospel and turns away from the gospel is saying, I'm gonna commit suicide. I'm gonna murder myself. I will not be saved. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not just come to be the watchman to warn us of that day when he'd come again in glory and what? Judge living in the dead. He came in order to offer us a way out. And that's what makes the gospel so great. Not the warning, but the solution to the warning. He said, I'm gonna make things right. I'm going to climb my wall, which was a cross, and I'm gonna sound the trumpet from the cross, and I'll receive from my Father all the due punishment that you deserve as a sinner. I'll receive it in my body and in my flesh. I will take your blood guilt to make you free to make you innocent before my Father for all who would believe. In other words, it's the completed work of God's watchman on our behalf that enables us to be the watchman on his behalf. Did you get that? It's the completed work of the watchman on our behalf, what Christ did for us, removing our blood guilt that enables us to go and engage the lost that their blood guilt might not be upon us. He already suffered, my beloved, all your greatest fears. You know that. On that cross, he suffered all your greatest fears, all the rejection, all the ridicule, all the persecution, the pain, the suffering, the torture, the death, the eternal wrath of God, the equivalency of an eternity in hell. He took upon himself. It was materialized in the flesh of Christ so that we could be set free from all our greatest fears and receive what instead? All our greatest hopes. All that you want through Christ is given to you. He takes away your fears and he says what? I'll give you eternal life. 
I'll give you forgiveness of all your sins. I will make you a son or daughter of God, bring you into the family. I will enable you to have joy, eternal, everlasting joy with my Father, now and forever. He takes all your fears and gives you all the hope. My beloved, if you are in Christ, you can boldly love and serve and suffer as a watchman for the gospel. You can. Whoever or whatever is telling you that is a lie, you can. Right here in San Jose, regardless of the consequences, you know why? You're untouchable. The Christian is untouchable. It doesn't matter what they do to you. They can't touch you. You're so secure in Christ, so sealed by the Holy Spirit. Your eternal destiny is so fixed, there's nothing they can do to you. Romans chapter 8, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword stop us? Paul says no. In all these things we are what? We are more than conquerors. We are hyper conquerors through him who loved us. Now listen to this. For Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If that's true, you're untouchable. You can be the watchman God has called you to be. My beloved, if this is true, you can confidently say Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me Nothing if you're in Christ. Oh, what a place to be. You want to set the world on fire? You and your life in Christ? Believe that. Believe that with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God is with you. Your brothers and sisters are with you. Christ has borne all your fears and given you all the hope so that you can be the watchman God has called you to be, to declare the glories of God, to warn of that day that is coming so that you can, listen, so that you can say, I'm innocent of the blood guilt of the lost in my mission field. We want to say that. We want to come before Jesus and say, listen, Lord, I tried. Not perfectly. I made a lot of mistakes, but I tried to let people know. I tried by grace and mercy. So I'm going to call you now. As a church, climb the wall, sound the trumpet, proclaim Christ, be a watchman. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many things you call us to in this Christian walk, and this is one of the hardest. This is hard. It's certainly hard here in a culture that not only rejects you, but is anti-Christ. I ask, Father, that you would, you would encourage me Encourage my brothers and sisters here with this understanding that, that you are with us, that we have brothers and sisters who are here with us. And if you are with us, Lord, and we're surrounded by your saints, then, then we can be, even this day, the watchman that you've called us to be. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for our cowardice, forgive us for our lack of courage, make us courageous in Christ. Not by our own strength, certainly not by our wisdom or our flesh, but by the power that resides in us through your spirit. Remind us as you did Paul through a vision, remind us daily through your word and prayer that you are with us, that you are on our side. And if you're on our side, Lord, then what can man do to us? We believe nothing. Make us those men and women. For your glory, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. 
If you would like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.